Light of the world, John 8, 12 to 20. You know, I don't know if you've seen on Instagram somewhere or maybe on YouTube those festivals where, where they release thousands of lanterns into the sky. Right? Who knows what happens to them after they're released. But it's very picturesque, Instagrammable, YouTubeable. It's a moment that is kind of awe-inspiring a little bit. People talk about how seeing all of those lights go up into the heavens, it has some kind of impact or effect upon their lives or their hearts. And just imagining that makes me kind of want to see it, you know? Uh, seeing the videos, or, and uh, uh, you guys know what I'm talking about? Or are you like, I don't know, whatever. Okay, a few of you, you guys know what I'm talking about. I've also seen it uh, where they, they have a bunch of uh, candles, lanterns, they release it into the ocean, thousands of those and, at night, and that also looked very, very amazing, right? And that's also something I hope one day I could witness in real life. Why do I talk about these things? Well, back in Jesus' time, there was something similar to this, and it was called the illumination of the temple. Right, I have a picture for you up here of what uh, that possibly might look like. There we go. Illumination of the temple. This took place during the festival of the tabernacles. If you were here last Sunday when Jesus invited them to come to him and to drink of the living water, uh, that happened on the last day of the feast of the tabernacles. And during that same feast of the tabernacles, there was this great thing they would do in the evenings, the illumination of the temple. Uh, tradition has it that there were these giant candelabras uh, that uh, were set up in the court of women uh, at the temple. Uh, I, I don't know if they, how they come, came to this number, but they estimate that these candelabras were 70 to 70 feet tall. 75, did I just say 70 to 70? 70 to 75, all right, that's the number. I'm not sure how they came up with that, but you know, 70, 70 feet is, that's, you know, right? That's high, very high. That's, it's like a building. And because they were so high and so big, they would, they would use worn-out priestly garments made of linen. Those would be the, the wicks for the, the lights. And because the temple was on top of a hill, the, the candles, these huge uh, fires, it illuminated the entire city below. And so if you were there for this, great feast of the tabernacles, uh, you could see this from afar, right? This would be what you see at night. And not only did you have these lights, but you would have these men of, you know, described Rabbi Simeon ben Gamaliel, that they said men of great skill, that they would be dancing and bearing these torches. I have another illustration of kind of maybe, I don't know if that helps you, uh, kind of, you know, this picture of dancing and singing and juggling, right? Apparently, one rabbi is said to have juggled eight uh, torches at a time while the Levite orchestra played on. The, the Babylonian Talmud describing this says, he who has not beheld this celebration has never seen joy in his life. Interesting, right? If they had Instagram back then, for sure, it'd be on everyone's Instagram. Now, this is the backdrop. This is the setting, the festival of the tabernacles. 
And what Jesus said to them uh, on this day, the passage we just read, it was either on the last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles or shortly thereafter. So either the lights would still be burning or they would have just turned off. Right? And, you know, it's kind of like if you've ever been on vacation and you're like, this vacation is just, I wish I had two more nights. I wish I had another week of summer break. I wish I could stay a little longer. I wish the party would not end. There's this maybe feeling of, ah, the lights were so great this year. The illumination of the temple. How amazing was that? And in that backdrop, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life. That's verse 12. Now, to the hearers in that day, to his audience, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, that probably had a lot of meaning for them. You see, there was plenty of Old Testament scriptures that used this very imagery of light to describe God. If you look at Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? God is described and pictured and illustrated as the light of hope, the light of salvation, the stronghold of our lives. In Psalm 199, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Maybe you've heard this verse before. God's word is described as what? A light, a guiding light, a leading light, a light which illuminates the very pathway of our lives so that those who are in obedience to God, those who are described as followers of God, those who are described as the righteous people of God, they are led by this lamp and light, which is his word. If you look at Isaiah 49, we find the prophecies, these messianic prophecies, which describe the coming Messiah, the coming Christ, as the light for the nations, right? In the middle of the verse, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So the coming Messiah is clearly described as what? A light for the nations, a light for the world. John chapter 1. John the Baptist Here's a man sent by God, and he's gathering the crowds. His name was John, verse 7. But why did he come? He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So do you guys see you see the point I'm trying to make? And we could see the response of the Pharisees. Even if, we're not, if you're not convinced by these verses, there's more verses. If you're still not convinced, all you have to do is you have to just look at the response of the Pharisees that day. In that temple, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and you look at his response, it gives away what Jesus was claiming to be. Uh, Matt Carter, uh, in his commentary, he says it this way, quote, so when Jesus stands up and calls out to the crowd, I am the light of the world, he's identifying himself as the Christ, the Messiah, 
the one who fulfills God's promise to make the world right again. He's not just saying, look, I'm the light. You know, it's not just some festival. He's not saying, I know it's going to go dark now. Oh, so sad. We, the, the fe- we have to wait again for the next uh, festival of tabernacles. But hey, I'm the light. His claim is that he is God himself. It's a claim of divinity. It's a claim that the one they had been waiting for has finally come. That the one that the Old Testament prophecies uh, has spoken about, it's him. I am here. I am the light of the world. He wasn't making a small claim. He was saying that there is no one bigger, no one greater, no one grander. He is the light of the world. Not merely a messenger, or a prophet, or a teacher, or a guru. I am God. I am divine. I am the light of the world. You may be familiar with this quote I'm about to shoot up there, but C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he talks about this. And you know, this was a problem back then because we could see it in the response of the Pharisees, but it's still a problem for us today. It's a little bit of a long quote, but I love it, it's descriptive, it's well-written, and it says exactly what I want us to look at today. He says, quote, I am trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus Christ. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg. (laughs) I don't know why he picked that. I'm a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. just in case the crowd was beginning to follow Christ because of maybe some of his signs, maybe some of his teachings, maybe describing the living water was like, wow, I mean, this guy is intense. He's saying things that we've never heard before. Who is like this teacher? Who is like this prophet? Who is like this guru? Who's ever said these kind of things? I want to hear more. And Jesus says right then and there, I am the light of the world. And with that one statement, he got rid of the possibility that he was a great teacher. Because you either had to say, this guy is crazy. He thinks he's God. He thinks he's the coming Messiah. He, you know, just because he could turn water into wine or trick us with that cool party trick, whatever it was, man, he's... He's claiming to be the light of the world. Now He's claiming to be the, the, the one we're waiting for. This guy's crazy. 
if there's any doubt as to what he's claiming, right after he says, I am the light of the world, what, he, what does he say? He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Walking in darkness, even at surface level, we see it as a, a pretty simple illustration, right? Who likes to walk in darkness, right? If you come home and the house is pitch black, what do you do? Turn on the light. It's like kind of basic, right? Because if you try to walk around in the dark, what do you do? If you're like me, you stub your toe on every piece of furniture in the house and every fight, it's like, ow, and it hurts. Right? You, you, you don't walk in the darkness. You bring out light. Simple metaphor. But in that time and in, uh, in, in that world and for the people there, walking in darkness had also already become a pretty standard depiction of living in sin. Walking in darkness meant walking and living in sin. Your, your life is full of darkness. You're in the darkness. You're walking, you're running, you're living in the darkness. You're not living in the light. Living in the light meant you were a follower of God. You were a righteous person. You were an obedient person. You're trying to do your best to love God, serve God, etc. Walking in the darkness meant the exact opposite. You're a heathen. You're a sinner. You're outside of the covenant community and household of God. You're the person to be avoided. You're the one that if you come into contact with, you better like either witness to them or you know, avoid them at all costs so you can still go to temple. And Jesus says, if you follow me, I'll rescue you from that. I'll lead you out of that. You'll, I, I'll take you from darkness to light. What was the response to this? Verse 13, the Pharisees are like, <laughs> all right, first of all, you're bearing witness about yourself, so your testimony is not true. All right, so now the Pharisees have turned into good lawyers. It was commonly understood that under Jewish law, whenever there was a testimony given in, in the courts, uh, a suspect could only be convicted on the basis of the testimony of at least two witnesses. You had to, two people, Two witnesses, all right, that's how it worked. You couldn't come by yourself and make all sorts of claims. You had to bring someone. And that's basically what they tell Jesus. Look, you're saying all of these things, but it's you, yourself, and you. Where's your witness? And Jesus' response, verse 14, I, I, I like his response. He's like, even if, I do wear, if I, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. I know where I come from. I know where I'm going. You do not know where I come from or where I am going. Now, uh, that sounds a little random, right? <laughs> he's like, all right, he's like, hey, Jesus, where's your other witness? Who are you bringing with you? Who else is here to say that you're God, that you're the Messiah? All right, uh, who do you bring? And Jesus says, even if I do wear, bear witness about myself, it's true. But you, you know what? 
Look, it's true because I know where I come from, I know where I'm going, you don't know where I come from, and you don't know where I'm going. It sounds kind of random, right? But what is Christ saying there to the Pharisees? Whatever, you know, one of the things we all, and we all do this, whenever we meet someone, whenever we're introduced to someone, whenever we're trying to get to know someone better, what are the things that we want to know? Where do they come from? Not literally, like, like you know, we don't want to know where you're born, right? If that, those aren't the questions. Has anyone ever asked you where were you born? Which hospital were you born in? Or it's, not, it, it's literally your past which identifies you, right? And then where you're going is also identifying you. What is your purpose? What is your plan? Who are you? What is it that you're doing? And for Christ, where does he come from? The glory of the kingdom of heaven. And he knows where he's going, back to the glory of the kingdom of heaven. But that journey of where he came from and to where he's going is going to involve the cross of Jesus Christ. But he knows this. And he tells them, look, I know this, you don't know this. This is why you don't believe my testimony. This is why you're calling me a liar. He says, you judge, verse 15, according to the flesh, I judge no one. I think we've got to be a little careful. We've got to dig into this. When he says, uh, first of all, I don't think this is Christ saying, I, I judge no one, right? Like, like he's some cool guy, right? Like, hey, man, I don't judge, man. I'm not a judger. Right? Do whatever you want, man. I'm not judging you. That's, this is not what Christ is saying. All right, first he looks, at, he looks at them and he says, you judge according to the flesh. Meaning, look, the reason why you don't believe what I'm saying and, and the reason why you believe my testimony is false, the reason why you're calling me a liar, is because the way you live your life, according to what you see, you see you're with your eyes, what you know is what you can touch, what you can understand, what you can feel uh, in this world and in this life, and that's how you judge things, according to the flesh. And so, if, you know, for Christ, if, he's, if he asked them, where am I from? If they knew, they would say, well, you're the son of the carpenter. Right? That's what they would think. Because that's what they see or have seen. And Jesus says, that's not how I judge. I judge no one that way. He's not saying he doesn't judge. And the reason why I know that that's not what he's saying, because in the very next verse, what does he say? Yet even if I do judge, all right? His whole point is he's trying to identify who he is. He's trying to tell them, look, I am God. I and the Father are one. Human beings, this is how you can judge things. This is how you decipher things according to the flesh. I am not like that. I am God. I am divine. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So he's like, fine, I satisfy this rule. This Jewish law and custom, there's two of us, me and my Father. And then they're like, hmm, verse 19, where's your Father then? We don't see him. Is he here? Is he dead? Is he alive? Where's your Father? Jesus responds, man. You don't know me, and you don't know my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. It's very interesting. I want to take a few minutes for us to consider 
this morning the response of the Pharisees to the claim of Jesus Christ. They didn't believe Jesus Christ to be telling the truth, which is sad because the Pharisees were at that time the ones who were the closest, most studious, most engulfed in the laws of God. Others may have spent their time trying to live and trying to stay alive and working or playing, whatever it is that daily life would have for you. The Pharisees spent their time studying God and his word. And yet, these are the very ones that Jesus says to them, you don't know me, and because you do not know me, you do not know my Father. And because you don't know us, you don't believe my testimony. Even though there's two of us testifying to what I just said. They ought to have been the ones who were closest because they were the ones we would think. They know the law. They've studied the law. Their lives are in the law. And yet, at this point at least, they didn't know the Father. They didn't know Jesus. The function of miracles, uh, R.C. Sproul, I don't know if I have this quote for you guys, but he talks about the function of miracles. Sometimes we think the function of miracles is to prove that God exists, all right? So God says, look, I want to prove that I'm a real God, so here's a miracle. Bam, I'm going to walk on water. Bam, we're going to change water into wine. But R.C. Sproul says this, that that is not actually the function of miracles. The function of miracles is to demonstrate and authenticate a messenger of God, right? So he's saying the miracles and signs are there to prove that God actually sent this person. That's why Jesus said, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. So in John 14, Jesus will actually lay this out to them. Says, look, believe me. Believe what I'm saying. I'm in the Father. The Father's in me. At least believe me for the sake of what? The works, the signs, those miracles. Jesus' miracles showed and demonstrated that God was with him. The Pharisees should have seen that, but they didn't. Right? They did not know the Father. I think for you and I, there is still the danger of making Christianity something similar. Let's come to church. Let's do this thing on Sunday mornings. Let's sing when they make us sing. <laughs> Let's sit quietly when they ask us to pray, etc., and then we'll go home. But man, there's a way to do that without knowing who the Father is. Without knowing who Christ is. Now, I don't think Jesus meant, look, I, I, I don't judge anyone that way, and I don't think he's trying to say I don't judge. But think about that for a second. Think about that. Now, how, how many of you guys like to read John Grisham books, or you're into like, 
movies about court cases and law and things like that, anyone? You know, you can't handle the truth. You know, right? No one? No? Right. I, I love, I love, you know, anything like that because there's like that pivotal moment in court, right? The defense attorney has some amazing thing that they've been hiding, like, and all of a sudden, or they didn't discover it till like the night before somehow. And, and it just changes the entire course. It's that moment in court, right? The accusations are being brought forward and it's that one thing that proves the person is innocent. You know, think about this. If we, you know, a lot of the language in, New T in, the, in the New Testament is judicial language. The language of justification, of righteousness. Well, the things that we're talking about, it's like courtroom language. And if you would imagine, uh, uh, you know, a courtroom, I don't know what you think a courtroom would look like, but imagine a courtroom. And imagine that we're on trial. And the case is being brought before the judge, the ultimate judge. And the case is such a strong case. It's going on for weeks. It starts from when you were born. And sin after sin, after transgression, after transgression, of false promises of you know, of changing your life, of doing things differently. If only God would hear you, you'll do this. And time after time of, of saying, yes, I'll be right with you, but right away we go back to the same life, the same heart, the same situation, the same style of living. And, you know, it's just being laid out in court. It's so embarrassing. So embarrassing. I mean, this is like slam dunk case against us. And Jesus, the great high priest, advocate, stands up in this very court. And this is the moment, right? This, if, if, you're, if this was the movie, this is the moment. This is what it builds up to. He's about to say something. It's going to be amazing. This is what's going to set us free. And what does Christ say in that moment? Does our great advocate say, you know what? Yes, everything is true. Let's, let's cut him a break. Can you just overlook that entire life of sin and transgression and disobedience? Let's just overlook it. Is that the great advocate we think Jesus is? This whole case of truth brought before the court, and Jesus just says, look, how about we forget all of those things? That wouldn't be dramatic at all, right? Like, hmm, <laughs> be very disappointed in that advocate. No, you know, in, the, in, in that pivotal moment, you know what Christ says? He stands before the court, and he says something that closes the case forever. He says, yes, all of these accusations are true, but I've already paid the price. I've paid the penalty, and no one is allowed to exact payment twice. Because I've paid it, case is closed. It's done. They're free to go. You can't demand payment again. Bah, fireworks, music, 
dramatic, oh, tears of joy. We hug our great advocate. We go back out of that courthouse. We live our lives. This is why he's the light of the world. Because he paid the price. Because he actually has something he can say. In that courtroom, when we were 100% guilty of all things, and yet we walk away having received an inheritance due to Christ. He leads us from darkness to light, amen? Amen? And my challenge to us, Crossway Church, my brothers and sisters, is that we would not respond the way the Pharisees responded. Not recognizing who he is, not recognizing his claim. He's not simply saying, I'm a great teacher, hear my words, this is some advice, here's some counsel, here's how to be happy when you're sad. Here's how to have hope when things are going terrible in your life. He's saying, I am the Messiah. Follow me. Follow me. I'll lead you out of darkness into light. We know where Christ came from. We know where he went. Let's follow him. Would you bow your heads with me? And I'm just going to pray for us, and then we're going to go into a time of response, response to singing, praise, and response to prayer. But let's pray together. Dearly Father, you, de- you, you clearly are the light of the world, our Messiah, our Savior, the one we depend upon, the one we need. You take us from darkness to light, but it's not just a simple journey, and that's not why you can, you know, we're, you did this by sacrificing yourself on the cross. And Lord, we pray that you would help us with our disbelief. We pray that you would help us with our doubt. We pray that you would help us with all of the struggles we go through, Lord. Just help us to see you for who you are. We want to exalt you as the King of Kings, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.